Pastor Thaddeus Matthews, a controversial Memphis pastor, has drawn millions of views with his messages online by punctuating them with profane words, and he says he really doesn't give a, quote, bleep, end quote, what traditional Christians think of this practice. Alex, what do you think of this potty-mouthed pastor? Shut the front door. (laughs) Is this guy for real? Cheese and crackers, Nick. I just want to call this guy and be like, what the French, toast? (laughs) This is swordplay. And we are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood, and I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. Nick, you you know what my son says when he gets frustrated? Uh, what does he say, Alex? He goes, ding, dang, doodle. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, Pastor Thaddeus Matthews could take a page out of uh, your son's notebook there. but uh... <clears throat> Send that guy a box of soap. On this episode of Swordplay, we're going to look at a few books from what is known as the Apocrypha. Specifically, we're going to look at the Song of the Three Youths, the Book of Susanna, and Bell and the Dragon. So grab yeah, your grab your Catholic Bible and turn to the Old <laughs> Testament. Or grab your copy of the Septuagint. It'll be in there as well. It's also in some copies of the, uh, some editions of the New Revised Standard Version. That's right. In fact, that's what I was reading from. I was reading from the NRSV and the Lexham English Septuagint. Now, Nick, what does the word <clears throat> apocrypha mean? You know, many people probably hear that word, and they think uh, it's something mysterious or yeah. intriguing. Almost sounds and, like apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. And so I suppose... For many people, the books are mysterious, but it's for the simple reason that we typically don't read these books. They're not typically read by, um, shall we use the word Protestant Christians, all right? They're just not in our Bibles. Uh, The word itself means hidden, and whether these books were hidden due to the material in them being suspect or because the material was deemed heretical, um, that is subject to debate. But uh, all the word means, apocrypha, all it means is hidden, right? That's right. Um, but there's also another term for it, right, Alex? Yeah, another term used, uh, especially in the Catholic circle, is the word deuterocanonical. Deuterocanonical. Whoa, that's a big word. What does that mean? It is. It means a second canon. Ah. So they uh, have their case for why they include it in their Bibles and uh, why they call it a second canon. Well, Nick, why do certain Bible translations include or exclude the Apocrypha? Well, it's interesting. There's a bit of history here, Um, and it it depends on which branch of Christendom you're a part of. If you're a part of the Catholic Church, the Catholic Bibles, like the Jerusalem Bible, New Jerusalem Bible, New American Bible, those, those Bibles have about seven more books than ours do, in addition to various addenda in certain books, like um, the three editions in Daniel. Um, There's an edition in Jeremiah. There's several in Esther. Um, But these extra books, quote-unquote extra books, are um, they were declared canonical, that is part of the canon of Scripture, at the Council of Trent in 1546. Now, They'd already been included in some Bibles. We'll talk about that 
more in a minute, but they were declared to be part of the canon of Scripture in 1546 at the Council of Trent. Now, our Eastern Orthodox friends, their Bibles, actually have even more books. They have, in addition to First and Second Maccabees, Third and Fourth Maccabees. They have the Psalm. They have Psalm 151, and they also have Prayer of Manasseh, and there may be a few others in there. But, um, and I think their tradition goes back even further, if I remember right, way back into the first um, millennium of uh, the Christian era. Certain copies, as I mentioned, of the New Revised Standard Version have these books, but those are typically um, typically advertised toward Catholics. I think that's just to sell more copies of the NRSV. But uh, that so there's there's a few reasons as to why these Bible certain Bible translations either include them or exclude them. Of course, sure. Protestant Christians um, they pretty well. Um, kicked the Apocrypha out with, uh, with the Reformation, although there had been other previous attempts at solidifying a canon. Uh, I found it interesting that the Masoretic text, if I remember right, does not include the Apocrypha. Nope. nope. And so, uh, so there's, there's all that. There's a lot. It's, it's complicated, right? There's a lot of different reasons as to why certain Bibles include or exclude these books. And that Council of Trent, I found... Um, was really in response to Protestant um, traditions breaking off, and they actually just more specifically and solidified the uh, approving of the Apocrypha. But the, the Apocryphal books were already included in canonical lists from the Council of Hippo in 393 and uh, a couple of councils a few years after that as well. Now, Nick... Um, those canons, though, back from the three and four hundreds, mm-hmm. uh, those would have included the Septuagint. Now, what is the Septuagint, and how is it related to the Apocrypha? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. So your your Old Testament originally was written in Hebrew with some Aramaic peppered in there for good measure. Daniel, for example, has a lot of... <laughs> Aramaic in it. Um, and in the third century BC, somewhere around there, is when they uh, began to translate the Bible, the Old Testament Bible, from Hebrew into the common language of the day, which was Greek. So they started with the Pentateuch, and then the rest of the Bible followed that, the rest of the Old Testament uh, followed that uh, in the uh, second century BC. This was the Bible that the New Testament writers used, especially Paul. One writer said that he writes like a man with the Septuagint in his blood. And so the Septuagint, that was pretty well the Bible of the first century church. Uh, there, the Hebrew scriptures there in Greek. And what's fascinating about some of these early Septuagint uh, copies that have come down to us today, they have certain apocryphal writings in them. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some who argue that the original Septuagint didn't have those books and that they were added later by well-intentioned Christians. There's that side of the argument. Uh, you also have, as I mentioned earlier, the Masoretic text doesn't have it, uh, doesn't have these books, the Apocrypha in them, and that's kind of strengthening that case of, well, these books were added later and they weren't a part of the original Septuagint. Um, 
Now, Alex, related to this, um, there were some – talk about these early codices of the Septuagint um, yeah. and what, what we know about them. So a codex, if uh, you don't know, is a collection of manuscripts. It's a fancy word for a book. So mm-hmm. a codex is a book with a collection of writings. And so when we talk about the reliability of the New Testament documents, we're talking about the early codexes that contain every book that we have in the New Testament. The thing we don't often talk about, though, is that those same codexes, like Vaticanus and Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus, those same codexes also contain the Old Testament. And the version of the Old Testament it contains is the Septuagint. And as you said, Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew. So in the Septuagint, for those codexes, those codices, you have uh, most, if not all, depending on the codex, of the books of the Apocrypha in there. And so what that means is inasmuch as the earliest Christians kept and copied the Bible as we know it today, those codexes that we use to copy the Bible also contained the Apocrypha. So you can take that for what you will. You know, I'm not saying one thing or another about it, like this is for sure authoritative in Scripture or not. But I can tell you one thing. The content of the Apocrypha was in the mind of the early Christian church. And if that's the case then I tell you what, Nick, I want that content in my mind as well. So I'm going to at least read it. And just a little trivia for you, FYI, Apostolic Fathers Irenaeus, Cuprian, and Tertullian quote from the Apocrypha as Scripture. You know, and to go along with that, I actually found a quote from uh, John Chrysostom, uh, who's one of these, he's not an apostolic father, but he's an early church father. Uh, We're talking like 4th century um, he has an entire sermon on the book of Susanna. Wow. So, I mean, yeah, imagine showing up on Sunday morning and your preacher's preaching from Daniel chapter 13, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's what it would have been like. And so, That's right. Um, and I stole a glance before we started at um, my copy of the um, Codex Sept- uh, Sinaiticus, and... This is one of the one of the earliest codices that we have. It's one of the it's uh, dates back to fourth century. Could have been one of the some make the argument it could have been one of the Bibles that was commissioned by Constantine um, in the fourth century. It has again just at a glance, first, second Maccabees, Tobit, Judith, uh, Wisdom of Solomon, Syriac. Uh, so it has those apocryphal books in them, uh, in it. Um, so I just I found that fascinating. Codex Sinaiticus, one of the earliest witnesses to the Bible. Right. And it has those books in it. Well, these uh, are fascinating books indeed, Nick. In fact, we're going to cover three of them. And they aren't really books per se. We're going to cover Azariah and the Three Jews. That's how it's labeled in the NRSV anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, Susanna and Bell and the Dragon. Now, don't be confused. That's not... Uh, the source material for Beauty and the Beast. It's a different story. In fact, all three of these stories are each one chapter long, and they are additions to the book of Daniel. That's right. Uh, So let's talk about um, Azariah and, what is it, Azariah and the Three Jews? I'm, I'm for some reason, I want to call it the song of... Well, I, the reason I want to do it is because I'm looking at the New Revised Standard, which has Song of Three Youths, but um, 
So it has a couple different names. But one of the key characters is Azariah. Uh, so Alex, tell us a little bit about Azariah. Who is Azariah? Azariah was one of the three Jewish youths mentioned with Daniel in Daniel chapter uh, 1 through 3. So his Babylonian name became Abed-Nego. So Daniel became Belteshazzar, Hananiah became Shadrach, and Mishael became Meshach. Oh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Got it. There you go. And uh, as the VeggieTales put it, uh, Shaq, Rack, and Benny. So uh, <laughs> the NRSV inserts this book in between Daniel th- chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Hmm. So the first, this uh, Azariah and the Three Jews, it's 68 verses long, and the first 22 verses are a prayer of Azariah. And verses 23 through 68 are a song sung, it sounds like almost as if in unison, by Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael, or uh, Abednego, uh, Shadrach, and Meshach. So thus the title of the book, Azariah, that is his prayer, mm. and the three Jews, that is the three of them singing together. Well, there is some, like I was I was reading, like you, from the New Revised Standard, as well as the Lexham English Septuagint, and it seems like it's not just Azariah who sings this song or prays this prayer um, in the Septuagint because, well, Azariah stands in verse 25 and prays. Um, it says that they said, and then you have the, the actual lyric. Is that is that fair? That is, is it Azariah or is it all three of them? And, and there's some distinction, some difference there in just depending upon which which version you're reading from so to speak yeah i think it does depend on which version you're reading and we'll get into that a little bit later too is what is the underlying text that the nrsv is using and uh what is the underlying text that the lexham english Septuagint using and so that's where you're going to find some differences between the two let's get in, into the actual content <clears throat> of this book um alex what what's happening in in these verses Okay, so in this story, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are thrown into a fiery furnace for not worshiping the gods of Babylon, or the golden image that was set up by uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this is in Daniel chapter 3, so you can read that there. You're familiar with it. By the way, um, you might notice that it's 60 cubits by 6 cubits big. That's 180 feet tall and 18 feet wide. I mean, this is a giant, this is a colossus of a statue. It's really, it's almost, it's as tall as a big building. Hmm. So the book adds that these three men, once they're thrown into the fire, they're singing. They're singing praises. They're walking around in the fire. Azariah breaks out in prayer, declaring in his prayer, mainly declaring the righteous judgments of God in all of the world, but specifically against his own people, Israel. He takes ownership for their sins, saying, yeah, we broke covenant. It's our fault, and you're just giving us, you're keeping covenant because you're righteous, and you always judge in righteousness. So it's a prayer of owning up to Israel's history of unfaithfulness, and it sort of culminates in this plea for God to accept as a sacrifice their contrite heart and humble spirit. So really drawing from some of David's psalms there, where if I could offer a sacrifice, I would, but I can't. So accept this sacrifice in place, a contrite heart and a humble spirit. Um, Yeah. yeah. Um, And the way I broke it down as I was uh, just going over it, 
um, this first initial prayer, it definitely starts with lament, <clears throat> lament and confession for sin, um, and it, it speaks to God's judgment upon his people and upon Jerusalem, and that's the first, well, verses 26 through 33, mm-hmm. if you're following along in the Septuagint, that's immediately followed by, as you were talking about, this plea for mercy, <clears throat> Uh, verses 34 through 40. And then there's a renewed commitment to God, uh, which sounds something like, uh, and now with all our heart we follow you, we fear you, and seek your presence. So there's that renewed commitment to God. And then there's kind of a an imprecation, uh, a plea to God to act on behalf of his people. Um, that's verses 42 through 45. Uh, let all who, here's one example, verse 20, uh, 21 in the New Revised Standard Version, let all who do harm to your servants be put to shame. Let them be disgraced and deprived of all power and let their strength be broken. Pretty well, pretty strong imprecation there yeah, yeah. Um, for God to act on behalf of his people. Well, and then after that, it takes a little break and gives us some more information. So it says the prayer, and then it tells us that we, um, in the furnace, when they were thrown in, the servants who were stoking the fire, they kept stoking it and increasing the fire because, you remember, they, they were ordered to make it sevenfold hotter than normal. So the angel of the Lord shows up, and he whooshes down into the furnace, and he starts blowing the fire away from the three Jews. And so he leaves the three Jews sort of in the eye of this fire tornado, except in the eye that they're being protected in. It feels like a cool, moist wind that's just whistling around them. And the flames are being blown up through the top of the furnace over 150 feet out of the top of the furnace. And it ends up burning up the servants and burning up the guards who threw them in. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, very impressive scene. And then it picks up with uh, another prayer, another hymn that's essentially sung to God. Uh, and all three of the youths are involved in this, and that's in both the New Revised and the Septuagint. And as they're blessing God, it's very, it's a very, uh, very similar style to what we find in, say, Psalm one thirty six, uh, which uh, begins, "Give thanks to the Lord for He is good; His steadfast love or His love endures forever." And that line of His love endures forever is repeated in every single verse. You get a similar structure here in this song that's reminiscent of Psalm 136, where there's a repetition of this phrase, sing praise to him and highly exalt him forever. That phrase is repeated at the end of every verse, beginning in verse uh, 57, is where that phrase is kind of uh, becomes the standard form. It has similar forms in verses 52 through 55 there. but um, So you have that aspect, and then you also have... It's a similar form to what you find in the Hallel Psalms. Um, uh, that's the, the last several psalms of this book of Psalms, which uh, typically begin, each verse begins, praise the Lord, hallelujah, praise the Lord. In this case, it's the phrase, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord is repeated again and again. And then you even it comes back to Psalm 136 at the end because that verse, 136 verse 1 of Psalms, is actually quoted at the end of this prayer, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. That's verse 89 um, in the Septuagint. 
Yeah, good catch, Nick. I uh, didn't see the relation to those other psalms. I just kind of noticed, yeah, each part starts with a blessing and then finishes with sing praise to him and highly exalt him forever. I almost almost wish I could hear what the song sounded like because it sounds like a, a call and, and repetition where you sort of have this refrain given after every single line. Where it's like, bless the Lord, all your creation, sing praise to him and exalt. Yeah, I don't know. But uh, maybe yeah, we'll have to make that some, one up later. Some Gregorian chant or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Probably sounded awesome. <clears throat> well, let's talk about some of the uh, interesting features here. Alex, what are some of the interesting notes from this prayer, this song, and the rest of the story in Daniel chapter 3? Well, I noticed that in the Septuagint, uh, Daniel chapter 3 only has the three men saying that God will indeed rescue them, as opposed to the Masoretic text, which is our, you know, our English Bibles are using the Masoretic text. It includes the idea where they say, hey, even if the Lord doesn't rescue us, we're still not going to worship your gods. So that part is left off in the uh, Septuagint. You only have the singular, confident declaration that God will rescue us, period. That's what you get in the Septuagint, which, I don't know, I kind of like that. And I was wondering, well, why would the Masoretic text have this addition that, but even if he doesn't, we still won't worship your gods? Not a bad thought. But then I was thinking, you know, the Masoretes, they came along around the middle of the first millennia, okay? So we're talking about four, five, six hundred A.D. Uh, the earliest copies we have of the Masoretic text is going to be Codex Leningradensis from around 1000 A.D. So all of that is post-destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, where God did not save them because they had rejected Messiah. So I tried to look at the Dead Sea Scrolls to see if it could corroborate with the Masoretic Text or Septuagint, but it can't because the scrolls are too damaged in these particular verses to uh, get anything out of. So maybe it's my my theory that uh, the Septuagint maybe is the more accurate reading, and the uh, Masoretic Text has a little uh, reinsertion going on based on their current position as the uh, displaced, dispersed uh, Jewish uh, people who rejected Messiah. Well, another interesting thing is that in the Septuagint, uh, it's the singing of the three men in the fire that Nebuchadnezzar hears, and then he comes over to check it out to see what what's that sound, what's going on. And that's when he notices that they're alive and well, and that there are even four of them walking around in there when there were only three thrown in. Hmm. One of them looks like a son of God. So um, that was a difference in the Septuagint as well. So interesting. Yeah, um, and one thing that I found was that because these books were included in so many Bibles, these this song in particular, these songs, were used by the early and medieval churches in their liturgy, uh, in their, their worship. They would adapt these to uh, their, their worship service, essentially. They would sing them. And uh, not unlike, you know, uh, if we take a psalm and then set it to music today um, or some other, you know, verse and passage in Scripture and, and set it to music. They, they took this, they took these songs and set parts of it to music and then sang it as part of their worship in the early and medieval church. So it's it's had an influence uh, throughout church history that uh, this, this particular book has. Well, Nick, uh, what are we up to next? Uh, Daniel chapter 13, the book of Susanna. (laughs) Um, uh, So Susanna is another one-chapter book. There's, uh, what, 60-some-odd verses in this. Um, But uh, let's back up here 
Alex, talk to us a little bit about this woman, Susanna. Who is she? Susanna is said in the story to be the wife of Jehoiakim or Joachim, whichever version you're reading from. Uh, her husband is a wealthy Jew living in Babylon during Jewish captivity. So she and her husband are very popular. They're loved by the Jewish community. And she's also mentioned as the daughter of Hilkiah. And her parents are credited with teaching her the law of Moses. And she is presented in the story as someone who fears the Lord. So she is the, uh, the heroine or the uh, damsel in distress in the story, if you want to read it that way. I got to tell you, Alex, reading this book, this particular story, it's it really is just uh, blood curdling. Just the the stuff that happens in this, it it's I know it's it's supposed to be one of the greatest short stories ever written, um, one of the great uh, mystery short stories ever written. But I got to tell you, some of this stuff is pretty dark. Like when we start running into the content here, let's walk through this a little bit and talk about what happens in this particular story. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, Nick. It reminds me of our podcast episode number eight and number nine with our interview with Jimmy Hinton. Right. And, uh, <laughs> as we get into the content, you might see why. So though this is only 64 verses, uh, this story tells us about two elders from among the Jewish captives who are promoted to being judges. So they're elders and judges, very influential, powerful individuals. So they often hold meetings at Joachim's house. So this is also Susanna's house. And so he's got a big house and he's got a big garden. Susanna likes to walk through the garden. And uh, while those two judges are at the uh, Joachim's house, they are often looking at Susanna and lusting after her and scheming about how to uh, really to, to get a hold of her and to have her. Un unbeknownst to one another, by the way, they yeah. they weren't they weren't doing this together. It was just one guy was lusting, the other guy was lusting after her. That's right. And they end up figuring out each other's common lust for Susanna because uh, they both sneak to the garden early in the morning to see if they can... Uh, try to pick her up and they run into each other and like what are you, what are you doing here and the other guy's like wow what are you doing here that's right and so they end up finding out that yeah they have a common lust for Susanna, and so they hatch this scheme to blackmail her into having sex with them so the elders sneak into the uh, large and elaborate garden that Susanna is in and they begin to spy on her as she's bathing right so we have these perverts uh looking at her and then they're waiting for the maids to leave. So the maids are, are sent away, the gate is closed, and then they jump out of the bushes and they start accosting this woman, Susanna. They threaten to say that they, uh, that they are going to tell everybody that they just caught her in adultery with a young man unless she has sex with them right now. So she refuses. She thinks about it and she's like, I'm I am going to uh, perish either way, so I'd rather not do what's evil in the sight of God. So she refuses. She screams. People come running in, and the story skips a little bit ahead, and it, it brings us to this trial that's taking place a short time later. Yeah, and if I can just skip ahead here just briefly, there's when, when you actually get into the trial part, one of the things that we find out is... It seems like this is not a one-off occurrence with these guys. These are these are bad guys. Right. 
Um, Daniel's going to enter the story here in a little bit, and one of the things that he will say is this is how these guys have played the daughters of Israel. Yeah. The daughters, plural, right. of Israel. That's uh, verse 57. These guys, it sounds to me, they were they were sex predators. They were using and abusing their power to satisfy their ungodly passions. So these are bad, bad guys, and somehow they have gained this position of power they tried to blackmail Susanna. She refused. Pious woman that she is. She's upheld as this, this very devout woman. But, um, you know, I just I think of all the... How many other women were there that these guys did this junk to? And it's just, it's awful. So Yeah. You, Nick, even at the trial, those evil elder judges, they used their authority to have Susanna's veil removed, which was somewhat of a scandalous thing to do and they did it so that they could touch her head and look at her face and lust after her while at the same time accusing her of adultery gosh it's like it's like larry nasser's right in front of the parents oh man so grief so everyone in the in the crowd they're totally believing what the wicked men say because they trust them as elders and judges that's it says that right in the text yeah but God hears Susanna's prayer, says so she just prays inwardly towards the Lord for help. And so God hears her prayer. He sends an angel to stir up Daniel. So Daniel's in the crowd. And then Daniel comes to the rescue, and he stands up, and he starts screaming out. And he's saying, are you guys idiots? Why haven't you done a more thorough investigation? You're not going to... Uh, ask more questions and so he says let me interrogate the elders i'll figure it out i'll show you that their stories are not going to match up so he interrogates each elder individually he puts them far away from each other so they can't collude about their stories they probably weren't planning on having to get their stories straight anyway so they get interrogated by daniel and daniel proves to the people that their stories don't match because he asks them yeah which tree did you see this happening under and their trees don't match. They sell different trees, and there's something going on in the text there with like a pun as well. But basically, their stories don't match, and thus by the law of Moses from the book of Deuteronomy, uh, if somebody falsely, if two witnesses, two or three witnesses falsely accuse somebody, and, and it's proven that they falsely accuse somebody, then whatever was going to happen to the person being accused, that now happens to the ones falsely accusing. So they are killed in Susanna's place. The people tie them up, they throw them into a ravine, and then God himself consumes them with a fire from heaven. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> That's epic. Yeah. Um, you know, even even as these creeps are rehearsing their story, their well-polished, well-rehearsed story, there are some glaring inconsistencies. Uh, for example, verse 36 when they start and they say, well, we were walking in the garden alone. This woman came in with two maids, shut the garden doors, and dismissed the maids. And it's kind of like, wait a minute, how how did the maids get out of the closed garden, right? So even as they kick up this story, it, it's obvious that these guys are, are lying. And then Daniel, he does his best Matlock impersonation. <laughs> obviously, Matlock, that's obviously appealing to our over-60 demographic, but... Um, <laughs> He, uh, he questions these guys, separates them from each other by a great distance, and asks them the same question, just as you said. Um, which tree? Which tree was it? And then there is a play on words, wordplay there. And uh, when each one answers, Daniel 
will condemn them each to death by their own word, by their own answer. Uh, in fact, in the um, in the Septuagint, Daniel does his uh, his best impersonation of a certain Clive Barker movie where he says uh, that your soul will tear your soul apart, right? <laughs> um, just this epic. I mean, Daniel Daniel's you know he's presented here as kind of the the chivalrous guy who comes in and and uh, helps helps Susanna in this in this story helps her to get justice. That's uh, right. So let's talk about some of the uh, interesting notes here in Daniel chapter 13. Um, Alex, what are some interesting notes here that we walk away with? Well, the NRSV and the um, LES, the Lexham English Septuagint, they have some points of divergence in their translation of Susanna. So the underlying Greek of the Septuagint used for translating uh, can either be what's called an eclectic uh, Greek text, which is the combining of all the best manuscript evidence into one coherent text, or you can use a diplomatic approach, which is you take a singular text source, and then you represent that in full, and you just supplement it whenever necessary. So the NRSV uses Ralph's edition of the Septuagint, which is an eclectic approach, and the Lexham English Septuagint uses Sweet's edition of the Greek text, which is a diplomatic approach. So that's why you get differences in the translation. Now, um, another interesting thing is that elements of the storyline, as I read through it, they feel very reminiscent of the story of the corrupt religious leaders in Jesus' day coming out in John chapter 8, throwing this adulterous woman before him and saying the law demands that we stone this woman caught in adultery. Yeah, that's right. I got the same impression. Yeah, Yeah. and, and guess who's not there? the guy who she was caught in adultery with. Yeah. And so Jesus's rescue, man, it just makes him look like the new Daniel. If you had read this story, (laughs) he is the hero of the abused. He has come to call fire down upon the evil religious leaders. Yeah. And I guess that that was another point in the story where when the guys are these, these evil elders, when they're explaining what happened when they caught Susanna, they say, Oh yeah, there was a young man there, but we, we didn't see who it was. He ran off and was covering his face while he was running. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So very similar to John 8. Uh, last interesting thing I noticed was that um, the prophet Jeremiah was also called the son of Hilkiah. So if this is the same Hilkiah, father of Susanna, then they would be siblings. And yeah. it would fit the timeline. The timeline would match. This would be a possibility. So, could- Which is interesting because the book begins with if not a direct quotation, then an allusion to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23.15, as it's rendered in the Septuagint, which says, defilement went out from the prophets of Jerusalem to the whole land. And uh, way back earlier at the beginning of Susanna, that's that's the quote that is used there to talk about the wicked leaders um, in Jerusalem, talk about these, these evil elders. Um, <clears throat> moral of the story is supposed to be God saves those who hope in him. In fact, in verse 60, the whole assembly raised a great shout and blessed God who saves those who hope in him. That's from the New Revised Standard. Susanna, though, was she was a lucky one. She was one who had Daniel stand up and believe her. Uh, even when it seems like maybe her family didn't necessarily take her side or couldn't because of the bad guys or what have you. 
she was the victim. She was about to become the latest victim of these sex predators and, and was facing the death penalty for this. And again, that, that phrase, the daughters of Israel that Daniel talks about in this, how many other young girls, how many other Dinahs, right? That's, a, that's the daughter of Israel who yeah. was violated by a man back in Genesis. How many other Dinahs were there who were violated by these monsters? That's, that's, the, that's the dark underbelly of this story. Um, these guys... Uh, I don't. Again, I don't think this was a one-off occurrence where you know they just happened upon Suzanne. I think they did this over and over and abused their power to get away with it. And let this be a shout out and a plug to our brother Jimmy Hinton and his website yeah. jimmyhinton.org. He uh, is an excellent resource within the church to learn about sexual predators today and the danger they pose and what we can do about it. You can refer to jimmyhinton.org, all of his blog and podcasts there, the Speaking Out Against Sex Abuse podcast, also our interview with him and the Swordplay podcast episodes 8 and 9. Nick, what do we have next? Daniel chapter 14. Bell and the uh, Dragon, all right. Man, talk about a, an interesting story here. Yeah, who's uh, Bell? Bell, uh, let's see here, it's right at the beginning. Yes, verse 3. Now, the Babylonians had an idol called Bell. So Bel is this false god, this idol in Babylon, um, and every day they provided a very substantial amount of food for Bel to eat. Um, what else do we know about Bel, Alex? Well, Nick, I did a little digging into the uh, dictionary of de- de- uh, deities and demons in the Bible, uh, uh-huh. DDD for short. Uh, don't be uh, con- thrown off by the name, it's actually quite scholarly. Um, they had an entry for Bell, and it was connected to an entry for Marduk. So the name Bell comes from the Babylonian term for Lord. And remember the Israelites in the book of Daniel, they're, they're in Babylon, they're in captivity. And so it's equivalent to the um, Canaanite term Baal. It's equivalent to the Hebrew term Adonai. Uh, it's equivalent to the Greek Kyrios. And so in Babylon, the deity which received the title of Bell uh, or Lord was Marduk. Marduk was the supreme ruler of the Mesopotamian universe. So Bel is Marduk. So both names are given in Jeremiah chapter 50 verse 2, Bel and Marduk. Uh, Just Bel is mentioned in Jeremiah 51 44. And Bel is also mentioned alongside his son Nebo in Isaiah chapter 46 verse 1. So Marduk or Bel worship reached its peak each year at what was called the Akitu Festival, which was a New Year's festival. So every New Year they have this festival where uh, Marduk is declared king, and he assembles all the gods of the lands to come together into this council and to determine the destiny uh, of everyone for the New Year. So Marduk, the way he rose to supremacy in the Babylonian pantheon was by defeating Tiamat. And Tiamat was the sea of chaos. Uh, the, the sea is often used as this imagery of chaos in the world, sometimes pictured as a dragon, like uh, uh, Leviathan. Yeah, like Leviathan. So thus, since Marduk defeats that chaos monster, Tiamat, that allows creation to thus take place. And so he takes Tiamat's body and he uses it as building materials to create the, the world and the sky and the heaven and the earth and under the earth. And so 
a lot of what's attributed to this guy is very, very similar to the attributes and storyline of Yahweh and his creation story. And so it would be very important for Israelite captives to understand that even though they are in captivity, they are not in captivity because of the destinies for, uh, written by Marduk, but they are in captivity because of their own sin, because Yahweh is in charge, and Yahweh will show his supremacy over Marduk every single time. And that's the underlying theme within all these extra stories. Yeah, uh, good work. <laughs> Um, let's talk about what's going on a little bit <clears throat> in this story here, and uh, I'll just get the ball rolling, and then I'll pass it off to you. Go for it. Um, for a little bit. So Daniel, he's he's a friend of the king, and in the NRSV it tells us it's Cyrus, King Cyrus. So that gives you a little bit of timeline here. But the Babylonians, they had this god, Bel, and they worshipped him, gave him an extravagant amount of food every day, and the king loved Bel. He went every day, worshipped at this uh, at this uh, site for, for Bel, but of course Daniel didn't. He worshipped the one true and only god. Well, one day the king asks, hey, why don't you worship Bel? Daniel says, well, it's because I don't worship idols that are made by hands. I worship the true and living god. And the king says, what do you mean? Bell's a living god. Don't you see how much he eats and drinks every day? And Daniel's like, king, all he is is clay and bronze, and he never eats or drinks anything. And so king gets upset, and they devise a plan, don't they, Alex? That's right. They come up with a test, and they say, well, let's leave food here for Bell. Let's lock the doors, put your seal on the door so no one can break it. And if uh, we come back the next morning and the food is gone, then Daniel's going to be put to death. But if the food is not gone, then the priests of Bel are going to be put to death for their deception. So they all agree to this plan. But when everybody's gone, Daniel sprinkles ashes all over the floor. So nobody knows about it except for him and the king. So when they come back and they break the seal on the door and they open it up, the food is gone. Oh, no, Daniel's going to die. No, Daniel's over in the corner laughing and chuckling to himself, and the king's like, what are you laughing about, Daniel? And Daniel says, hey, come look at this. What do these look like? The king goes, oh, those are, those are footprints, footprints of men and women and children. And they lead to a secret trap door, and guess who's hiding in the rooms that are hidden under the floor? It is the, the priest of Bel, of Bel and their family. Yeah. yeah. So the story ends with the king killing the priests of Bel, shutting down the temple, and giving all the money being used to upkeep the temple to Daniel. Man, that Daniel's a smart guy, man. <laughs> well, he had uh, a, an angel of the Lord staring up and giving him wisdom. I mean, he, he had some supernatural wisdom. He's so, like Solomon, but better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's that's the story, uh, the first story in this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the next story picks up, which is uh, much shorter and is kind of an interesting little thing. The, the Babylonians, they were polytheistic. They had this, they worshipped a lot of gods. They had this other dragon god. Um, and so now the king says to Daniel, Daniel, look, you can't deny this is obviously a living god. It's alive, right? What exactly it was, we're not really sure. Could have been a Komodo dragon. I don't know. But anyway, they've no got way, this dude. giant... It's full-blown yeah, full dragon, I believe it. 
or <laughs> fire breathing. Yeah. And so he's like, worship him. And Daniel says, no, I worship the Lord God, the living God, the true and living God. And the king says, uh, well, Daniel says to the king, well, um, here, I'll, I'll prove it to you. I will kill the dragon, slay the dragon without a sword or a club. And the king says, go ahead. So Daniel makes this like food bomb. Yeah. It's, it's like it contains <laughs> ancient yeah, recipe pitch, for dynamite. Pitch, fat, and hair, boils them together, makes a cake. It's interesting because um, in in the New Revised Standard, it just says he fed it to the dragon. But in the, the Septuagint, it says he threw it in the mouth of the dragon. I love that. Yeah. Force feeds this food bomb to this dragon. He eats it, and he bursts open. And and so Daniel's like, see, this is what you're worshiping. Isn't that and how they kill the giant worms and trimmers? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. They feed it dynamite. And um, well, anyway, people get upset. And so what happens, Alex? Well, this story um, concludes with Daniel saying, well, king, don't worship such things as this. It's laying in like blubbery, bloody pieces everywhere. And people are upset. And so this third and final story of Bell and the Dragon, it's really in addition to the story of Daniel and the lion's den. And it shows you why all the provinces called satraps, why they were so angry with Daniel. They weren't just angry with him because he was one of the top three satraps. That's information we get in Daniel chapter 6. But these additions let us know specifically that they were angry because of the destruction of Baal worship and worship of the dragon had disappeared. That's mm. what ticked him off. And so these provincial leaders are pictured as politically strong-arming the king into getting rid of Daniel. And the king basically gives in, throws Daniel under the bus and says, fine, I'll give up Daniel into your hands. And so the law that is put into place for uh capturing daniel says you can't pray to anybody or any god for 30 days unless it's to the king so obviously daniel doesn't follow that he just prays like normal he's arrested for breaking the law he's thrown into the lion's den and it says they even starve the lions for a little bit ahead of time just to make sure they're extra hungry for daniel that's right but of course no harm comes to daniel in fact on day six that he's in the in the lion's den he's in there for seven days total on day six an angel of the lord shows up to the prophet Habakkuk in the middle of his work day. He's taking his lunch break, right? Yeah. And he's putting some bread inside of a soup. He's about to eat this, like, porridge. And all of a sudden, this angel shows up, and he's like, hey, go give that to Daniel in the lion's den. And Habakkuk's like, I don't even know where the lion's den is. Where's Babylon? And That's right. the angel grabs Habakkuk by the head, teleports him to Daniel in the lion's den, says, okay, give him the food. Habakkuk gives him the food, and Daniel's like thank you, God. And then the angel teleports Habakkuk back to where he was before. And <laughs> this this teleportation stuff, it is it should not be news to us because you have the same thing happening to Philip in Acts chapter 8 after right. he baptizes the eunuch in the middle of the wilderness. So Daniel is released on the seventh day and the enemy satraps are thrown in the den and they're devoured. So we have part of that story from the traditional, you know, Daniel chapter six, but these extra parts, Bell and the Dragon is the lead up to add the extra backstory to Daniel and the Lions Den. So that's yeah, that's an incredible story. <laughs> it is, and I think that uh, dragon was real. 
Hey, I do too. I just think it was a Komodo dragon. I think it was a full-blown, like, medieval-looking dragon with wings. And it was open. It's, it was like a Lord, Lord of the Rings dragon. What was that guy? What was that dragon's <laughs> uh, name? Smaug. Yeah, it was, to- was Smaug, man. Smaug <laughs> opened his mouth. He threw the cake bomb in, and he died. So you think? Do you think this is a, this is an expansion on the Daniel Six story? I was getting the impression it was like a, a, a separate but similar account where Daniel's in the lion's den just longer. No, I think it's an expansion of the original story, hmm. um, and I think the whole purpose of telling the story about Bell and then the dragon is to lead up to the expansion. So, what are some interesting things you saw from this extra chapter? Um, for me, it was, uh, I wonder if there is a hint in Daniel slaying this dragon of what Christ would do with the dragon Satan. Oh, yeah. Um, I think there, there may be some motifs there, just a prefigurement of Christ's victory over the serpent of old who craves worship, right? This dragon was being worshipped. Satan craves worship. Um, but here's the here's the big difference. Christ does not overcome the devil with a food bomb. He overcomes <laughs> him with his body on the cross. Yeah. So, I, that's that was one of the things I picked up on. And you? Well, in the in the NRSV, it mentions the king in these stories as Cyrus. Mm-hmm. Um, the Septuagint just says king. It doesn't mention right. which king. But in Daniel chapter six from the Masoretic text, it lists Darius as the king. Uh, at the time of the the lion's den incident. So while Daniel 6 has Darius extremely worried about Daniel, vexed, he's been duped by the satraps, he's so worried, he he can't believe he signed that law. In Bell and the Dragon, the king is pictured as complicit and co-conspirator. So that's, Yeah, but he does, he does show up to mourn for Daniel, doesn't he? Yeah, um, he shows up mourning, but I mean, it still doesn't is, get is, rid of it. He goes along with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it still doesn't... Uh, set him free from his his complicit uh, compliance and his co-conspirator role that he played. He's still he's still pictured. Let's put it this way: in Bell and the Dragon, in these three stories, the king is pictured as a much more like sort of wicked, unpredictable, wild, evil kind of guy, as opposed to in the Masoretic text where he's pictured as this really great, humble, like lord seeking like you know yahweh seeking person she's like no that wasn't it in this story so it's it's very very interesting one of the things about these these stories is um these books is historically while um while those in the the protestant branch of christendom have not deemed them as inspired text they have recognized that there is in some inherent value and that they're beneficial in reading. So not inspired, but beneficial. And, you know, as we, as we share these, these particular stories, and we'll, we'll do some more in the future, but I hope you, oh, diligent listener, uh, see that, that these, there's, if nothing else, they're, they're entertaining. They're good reads. Uh, they, they, uh, capture the imagination, uh, and and uh, uh, one of the things, Alex, that you had mentioned earlier was crumb. It slipped my mind. Pick up where I left off. <laughs> <laughs> um, if it was in the mind of the yes, early that was Christians, it. yeah, yes. So th- the content here, 
uh, was definitely in the minds of the early church and the early Christians, probably in the mind of even, uh, I don't know, the Apostle Paul and those who wrote the books of the Bible. So there, right. I think there's, there's some benefit here, and um, I, let's eliminate some of the mystery and just take up and read. I think that's a good exhortation for the audience today, Nick, and yeah, I'm looking forward to our future editions of the Apocrypha, and maybe we'll even throw in some uh, overview of books from the Pseudopigrapha or other interesting things written in the intertestamental or Second Temple era. These things, uh, I think they can help us. Maybe it might not seem as applicable right at first, but as you sort of get familiar with these stories, you might see more connections than you would initially have guessed when you're reading your New Testament. And so I think it's because if this stuff was in the mind of the first century Christian, then the first century writer of the Christian you know, New Testament, they're going to probably be drawing from some of this stuff, uh, if anything, alluding to it. And it just makes it richer. It makes the, the study of the word richer. It widens our worldview. It uh, perhaps answers or brings some possibilities into the uh, way we see the history of God's people uh, in, in ways we hadn't thought of before. So I'll, I'll leave that there, Nick. Any final thoughts? No, I think we've uh, we've pretty well upholstered the subject for today. Go ahead and send us questions if you have any at swordplaypodcast at gmail.com, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Go into iTunes, go into the Google Play Store, search Swordplay, download all the episodes to your particular device, and uh, leave us a review. Get the word out about this particular podcast. Really do appreciate you tuning into another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.